Don't you know? Talking about a revolution sound. Promise No Promises is a series of podcasts that has its origin in a research project initiated by Chus Martinez and supported by Institut Susch, Art Stations Foundation Switzerland and Gracina Kulcic. Don't you know? Talking about a revolution sound. The aim of this project is to raise attention to the role, language and importance of art education in positively influencing gender equality in art and culture. Don't you know, talking about a revolution sound. The first chapters depart from material recorded during a two-day symposium at the Basel Art Institute on the 10th and 11th of October 2018. Don't you know? There, a group of artists, curators and art historians, moderated by poet Quinn Latimer and Chus Martinez, debated on the questions that surround the question of gender. Don't you know, talking about a revolution sound. Is there any beginning that can proceed without questions? Don't you know, We don't think so. And yet... Should the queries concern gender, the question of women, and transgender issues? Should questions of masculinity also be asked? And are these general inquiries similar to those queries that follow us to work, within and without the arts? Are practical questions relevant, those that redefine our thinking on the matter? Are old and new feminist concerns, arising from a spectrum of feminism, adequate to cover the entire spectrum of questions that we may need to ask. Are these queries an exercise we may desire, as well as a protocol we may embark on, to test the equality health of specific, professional and personal situations? Do you think you can avoid having to deal with all these issues? Are you afraid of talking? Does the sound of your own voice give you pleasure or make you wince? How much money do you want to earn? Do you think your career will continue to rise in the near future? Are you afraid of your own desires? Is it better to remain mute or to disclose your ambition, even if many times you seem to not find the words to express it? Don't you know, talking about a revolution sounds like I was not long ago in a jury uh, reviewing portfolios to give a, a large scholarship. And then um, a colleague, a curator, a male, was saying regarding one portfolio of a woman, said, wow, it does not look like a woman art. It looks really like it could be made by a man. And then I said, what do you mean? And then he said, well, you know, it really looks like made by a guy, you know, these large scale sculptures, all that. It's very difficult to tell if it's made by one or the other. And then I said, but can you go further into your beautiful argument? And then he said, um, <laughs> what's the need of supporting female artists if at the end of the day now they are doing art that looks like male? And then I said, yeah, this is a very, very important uh, point what you are making. So, you know, on top of judging the portfolio, you are accusing the artist of lying and impersonating uh, the art of male. And then he said, well, yes, because I think otherwise you would not notice the support. 
And it's like, ah, okay, so you need to support something that looks like what you want to support. So if the matching of the image and the support don't match, you better don't do it because then you prefer to give it to a male. So, and then he said, well, I think, are we not thinking the same here in the room? And I said, no, no, we are not really thinking the same in this room, but it's important to actually talk and address these expectations towards the form and the aesthetics of a certain practice. You know, and this paradox in between what is expected, which is a universal principle called art, but then it's not, because uh, we all know that there is certain traits that are in some families and not in the other, perhaps historically, and perhaps these traits disappear. And, uh, and that's exactly what I think it would be the first question, I think. Do you do female art or art or masculine art? Don't you know, talking about a revolution sounds I mean, it's, it remains an open question, what, of course, we'll talk about today. But I think we were interested in um, moving perhaps um, away just from the kind of structural conditions of labor and the institution and so forth, and perhaps back into the studio and thinking specifically about artistic practice and how it's gendered and how it's inflected by gender and how it's inflected specifically by being women. Um, of course, as Chu said, we on one hand, we want to sort of skirt essentialist notions, and on the other hand, we can't, because regardless of the kind of gender fluidity we might all feel inside, what we are is most of us are received as women by the larger society. We're received as women artists, as women writers, as women curators, as women theorists. And so this naturally inflects everything that we do. Um, and so we wanted to talk today, we have a series of, of artists and, and writers and curators today, and we wanted to talk to them specifically about, about their practices, about their, the work that they do, um, the way that they think about it, the way that their, their bodies, their conditioning, um, their lives kind of inflect and infuse into these practices. Don't you know, talking about the I don't do art. Um, <laughs> That's also good. Yeah, <laughs> um, but but I, but I think there are so many interesting questions that you just raised. Also, in in the statement of your colleague, um, in the sense that we still think there is something. I mean, if we think there is something like a universal position that we could describe, um, which is absurd, because I do think that at least the last two second waves of feminism have showed us that there is no universalism. Um, and so it's really, it's kind of absurd to still work with those terms and to ascribe a, a, specific, per, a, um, a specific portfolio, um, the adjective of being male or female. Um, and also, I think we're, we are also confusing two different levels in a way. Um, the one is that we're, um, when I'm curating, of course, I'm, I'm handling a kind of public space, um, a pu publicity, um, and then then the question is, of course, a question of representation, and it is a question also of how many male and how many women artists are actually shown. But it is also a question in terms of curating which topics um, are introduced in that space. Um, are queer feminist topics introduced or not? And so I think the question is a difficult one because, of course, we all, we all um, renounce um, essentialist claims towards portfolios or people um, at the specific time. 
uh, point in time that we're at, but on the other hand, there are some um, identity-specific claims that, that, need, that we need to make still, because, um, because representation is not equal. Um, we don't have equal representation of all genders in the exhibition world, let's say it like this. I agree with what you say, and uh, if I am representing the studio, well, the artist, it's also difficult for me to, to I am unreliable somehow, <laughs> because uh, I, I don't make portfolios, or I, I finally had to do some, but I don't have products, for example, and it's all about how I, how I do or undo, or not do these things, and how I, I I, I, I connect, or like, how am I invited? How do I respond? How do I problematize my intervention? And, um, but still, uh, since I don't have a studio practice, um, I invented for myself a topic, or I introduced it, maybe the, the woman in the work, or maybe the medium, or etc., but as problems and not as the thing. Yeah, for me, it's like it's uh, both ways. One is kind of content-wise that I think a lot of my work deals with, uh, let's say, the beginning of modernity and the kind of violence inflicted towards other bodies, whether like mineral or animal, or um, but also I've done work about women workers uh, working night shifts in film factories. So it's like something that's also appears in my work. Um, and then it's also, for example, the way I choose my collaborators, uh, that mostly I work, I, I can, I'm kind of very conscious who I work with. So I always work with, the, with a certain composer, with women composers, with women writers. I like specifically invite more women than men. And I mean, now we're again with these men-woman words, but, uh, but this is also a conscious choice. That, um, and I support my female artist friends. I mean, it's just like something that uh, I chose as an attitude also, somehow to, to, this is something I can contribute. So I can make, uh, ask a male composer who's already been very prominent, or, or can ask a female composer to work with me who has maybe not been so uh, shown so much or heard so much. So these are kind of small choices that I think I can have an influence on. And I think um, just being an artist for me is something political. And then I think what I, 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 what's happened in my studio and with my work is um, I think it's more something that resists. I'm, I'm using um, a lot of um, um, image or stuff connected to architecture, um, to, to geometrical forms, um, also to engineer and, 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 uh, and forces and uh, uh, physicality, and I think it's also because I need to work on some stuff that resist to me. If it will be resolved, I would not have um, the need or to, to, to be confronted to this kind of th stuff. And um, I think um, I'm not uh, pretending having any kind of uh, feministic message directly in my work, but um, being every day in my studio and working um, and, and not fighting, but having this relationship to the, all this stuff that resists me is already a kind of um, way to be involved into, into change or, or understand the stuffs. Don't you know, talking about a revolution.
Um, my, my biggest revelation was working with Caroline Christoph when we were doing the documenta, because she was proclaiming from day one nonstop in a really annoying way that she was a feminist. No, no, I'm a feminist. I'm a feminist in everything I do. I'm a natural born feminist. I'm not only a feminist. So it was like so saturating. And I thought that, can we please get out of that for a second? And she would not let go. And she would actually um, insist on it in a really radical way that I thought it was surrealistic because nobody can be a feminist that way. That it make you even doubt she was a feminist. Then you would confront her with that and she would say, no, I doubt I'm a feminist. Well, I'm a feminist. So you doubt that I'm a feminist at the same time. So you go into that kind of thing in order to find the space, even in our mind, to everything that we have been saying this morning, the lack of elo eloquency, the fact that sometimes you don't find the words to say no or even to react, uh, the blocking this con continuous female insistence on processes, on delicacy, on fragility, on all these questions, and how do you find a language and a space where these things become actually the main uh, vertebral uh, pieces that may construct programs, text, and so on, without having to stress it, saying it. And I was so surprised on her way of working because it was radically different from a male uh, curator. I worked before with many, male curators and with many, many colleagues. And I discover that there is a difference. And in discovering the difference, I learn that you can learn because it's, it's a radical different way in entering the studio of an artist given time. Like the idea of, for example, with many male curators, I experienced that you have like 10 minutes you need to present. There is a common eloquency that goes and transmits the work. And the very moment that you just surpass that kind of language, there is a code, there is an immediate bonding. Uh, we know what we are talking about. It's like, you, you know, uh, Hobbes and Descartes uh, talking. So the code is there. And then you just rehearse it. 10 minutes is, is suffice to know if you are in or you are out. It's completely what all these these marathon systems of all these kind of uh, presenting portfolios in hotels to male curators, all these kind of uh, uh, 89 plus uh, systems of logics, of choosing, of acting upon the material has been rehearsing, very actively rehearsing it. I think all this uh, 89 plus thing no, that the curators um, were and, and then they just review portfolios and in that kind of filter of portfolios, the, the, the mostly the woman would uh, totally go through, like fell out, unless there is a, a completely consciousness of the quota and maintaining the political correctness so that they don't go out because that's the code and we're not in the code. So um, I was like amazingly surprised by taking a day to do a studio visit uh, for a woman that I was really not comprehending. And then seeing that it's the time it takes to just do that and also the allergies it takes. Even your own um, immune system, the homeopathic thing that you are not liking it, that this kind of, of feeling yourself not liking it, I don't like it, I don't really like it, I would prefer to get much more faster, I don't like the language, oh no, no, not again, oh God, oh nine, or like, oh fuck, like this kind of pain that goes through the system, and this being the enduring it, enduring it, and then seeing the work, starting seeing the work, and seeing the system, and seeing the rationale, seeing the materials, 
seen the complication, seen how it comes across, and then just being able finally to see the work after so many hours, and then being completely embedded into that intelligence and going osmotically towards it, and then you realize, oh yes, uh, it is a different method. You cannot equally do it. You need a complete different working method. And, and that's super important, and that it needs to be imposed upon us of others that teach you. So it's a mega, ultra, immense, ambitious pedagogical um, project. And I, I, and I do believe that, that this is what actually we need to be conscious about as a, as a man as well, because you, you could also, um, you know, it's not that strict. There's also many people working differently, but there is, there is a constant there. There is something that we have learned through systems that we empathically, but also entropically replicate. It, it teaches me um, to try to figure out ways of, of getting faster. Uh, in ways that may effectively affect positively uh, the next generations, so that they don't need to go through the same uh, suffering of 20 years of realization. So you maybe realize it in, let's say, four, and then we already gain like some years uh, for the course. But do you really think that sort of short-circuiting of um, of sort of the experience of struggle or sort of disenfranchisement or marginalization as possible. I mean, from my own experience, I was raised by a very militant feminist in a house that was, um, that was completely feminist sort of in every way. And, and despite that sort of equity and equality at home, which had like also very strange um, cadences because also there were, you know, it wasn't a sort of essentialist feminism. I had a father, I had a stepfather. They were sort of a part of this. But as soon as I sort of moved outside the home into the world, that kind of disenfranchisement sort of greets you. Like there's no, I don't know if there's like, if there's any way of like sort of learning these lessons that can be applied when the conditions of the world in which you live and work and act, you know, sort of remain in a kind of, in a kind of past that right now seems seems to be sort of coming back with sort of this unmasked fervor, you know, that we're sort of almost progressively going backwards, if that's, if that's possible to say. Um, and I wonder, you know, you were talking about having, doing these studio visits that would like maybe take a day as opposed to the sort of marathon idea of sort of uh, going through portfolios and making careers like this, check X, check X. But then you said something about wanting to make things faster, but do we really need to make things faster at this moment? Maybe we need to make things slower. Maybe we need like, mm -mm. maybe the temporality needs, and I don't mean progressively mm -mm. slower, but I mean the time in which we work and we do things and we think. No, like, I do you, think, no, I, I feel that the time that's left for a certain idea of freedom and so on is not that much. So I really feel like never this kind of urgency of, of acting in every level you can and try to change. I think I feel we are in, in a bad transitional time and then we have like few, like I, I don't sense time left, mm -hmm. but it may be me particularly. Mm -hmm. But I also think that we are kind of fit enough at that point to combine really extravagant, beautiful, complex thinking with measures. But do you, but do you equate the time of the studio or the time of the making or the time of the thinking with the sort of time of activism and political urgency and movement? Because on one hand, I agree, I think that Right now, we have, we have very little time. Like, this is the time for activism. This is the time for struggle completely. And at the same time, in my own work and my own life, I think that this kind of, also the, the kind of 
the very succinct um, temporal pace of the art world and this like kind of constant turnover seems to me actually related to ideas of austerity and extractive capitalism and all these things. And so I actually want to sort of move away from that. Mm -hmm. And I want to slow down the sort of rate of production because I'm not sure what this like, the speed of production actually ends up contributing to the cause, to no, the struggle. You are totally right, but I'm also very, I don't know, I'm, I'm also very worried about all this, uh, you know, when we move out, are we moving out into what? Are we moving out into a into a retreat with a with the possibility of rethinking and then influence back again or having a sense of, of influence? I'm obsessed with this idea of influence. I'm obsessed uh, who has influence and how what has an effect in redefining influence today. And then at the, at the other time I'm all absolutely preoccupied by the questions of this kind of going out to what? To a retreat or to a storage? Like I perceive Berlin as a storage. Then people are saying, no, no, Berlin is not cheap enough. Let's move to the storage Lisbon. Then you need to go to the storage Athens. So, but all these are, con are they really uh, places from what, like, what are we going out to? And so this is what preoccupies me. I like, mean, our like, retreat might be someone else's sort of prison. It yeah. might be the speed at which they live. And that might be the retreat, certainly for like economic and geopolitical reasons. But but I've been analyzing, for example, the evolution of uh, how culture has been perceiving power and the structure of the public space. So it's really not, um, 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 it's not by chance that uh, in the middle of the 60s and after the kind of at aftermath of the Second World War, the most powerful book was The Structure of the Public Sphere by Habermas, a horrendous, incredible book that I don't recommend you to read because it's impossible, but it's probably the book with the, with the greatest influence in trying to tell us that if there is a mandate that we need to take is the mandate of reclaiming the, pub the public space. And it's very interesting because nobody actually act on that book but the art scene. So it, it has been culture that all of a sudden in public programs put philosophers and thinkers in at the core of the public programs and then create the events like the big biennials and all that, that you may say, well, it's the stardom of the curator and so on. And it is actually the money of the, of the uh, city councils that they were blooming and being absolutely corrupt all through Europe and so on and so forth. But still, it's very interesting because the, the arts felt through all this evolution, participatory arts, uh, representative democracy and artistic practice and so on, they felt the mandate that the public space need to be claimed, that it's really important for us to articulate it in the middle. And then all of a sudden, since the last decade, uh, you have a sense of the contrary, the sense of retreat, of going out of the residency, of the coming closer, of the being actually alone to be able to produce uh, intimacy in certain ways and so on. And I'm, I'm wondering, I don't know, I don't have the answer, but I, I really feel that we need like these gatherings. For me, it's an immense luxus. And I think that the only luxus that we can have is being in the place of being able to invite. So the idea of being able to, to generate the generosity where you can put people together so that they meet and to can have an exchange has no price because of the digital of course, because it, it has been transforming our idea of the presence, but also because it may give us a new motivation to reclaim the public space differently. And, and, and we need to reprogram the language together. So I agree with you, and I think that we need to slow down and speed up at the same time, almost in a contradictory uh, manner, because we really need to 
have the ability to think, but we also need to have the language to act. Otherwise, it's, it's going to be difficult, and we need ourselves more than ever, I would say. Don't you know, talking about the revolution sounds. It's true, and, and it goes back to what you were saying, that it's very important to have gatherings such as this, to voice you know, both one's ambition, to voice um, the violence that has been inflicted on you, to say these things out loud. And yet, at the same time, one of the pitfalls with Me Too, as we're seeing, is that without... Um, without basically tackling the structural institutions and problems that create the situations in, in which predators like this can exist, um, men will fall away because of if, if someone speaks out against them and they will be replaced by another. And so while language and speaking and togetherness and conversation is like an essential part of what we're doing, it cannot be the only part. You know, that it has to also be coupled with a kind of activism that's much more structural um, because these, because people are not only individuals. They are supported by institutions and by a system. And the system remains in place. And there are plenty of people, you know, who to fill it. As soon as a man falls, another takes his place. And usually the men who fall have lost a bit of power anyway. It's the only reason they're falling. Other men are trying to get them out. They use the Me Too movement in order to do so. And someone else takes their place. And they might be just as much of a monster. So it's while it's important to be able to like voice ambition and voice violence and all these things, I think I can't. I, I think this has like been a long conversation in the feminist movement that somehow conversation among ourselves, who, whoever ourself is or itself is, is somehow not enough. It's like really just the beginning, and um, and I think it can feel it can feel good after being quite isolated to do this, but those feelings of sort of pleasure can't also be a door that shuts. They have to like usher in something something like more in, along the lines of collective struggle, basically, or nothing really is going to change. Yeah, it was also because one of the questions that uh, stuck, uh, struck me was the question about the normalization that was also in the list. And yeah, this kind of relates a bit to what you were saying. You no, know? like what if these institutions, they kind of normalize or they kind of absorb or digest these kind of feminist agendas, but like in a very yeah. soft way. We or, should, quickly I should reiterate, so the question in one of I the questions in this list just before you go is, was basically, do you think that the contemporary art world's like sporadic um, embrace of feminism, which is normally sort of Western, white, upper-class feminism, is a form of normalization and misogyny? So that once they get out of the cycle of feminist shows, which they go through every few years, they go back to their sort of regular sort of sexist practices and racist and so forth. Yeah. So this is... Yeah, this is like, for me, that relates to that, you know, that it's kind of... Uh, yeah, how to deal with that, that yeah, okay, talking amongst us is fine, and then maybe one can have some influence and some things change, but then in a way, is it just like a, not a farce, but is it kind of a absorption of this critique by the, uh, by the institutions, or is there really like a change happening? Don't you know, talking about a revolution sound. This is upon us, I think. I'm not really here to talk only among us, um, I'm, I'm begging you uh, 
to try to um, reconduct your behavior. I think it's not a conversation only. It's a way of coming to terms and inventing ways of performing different. I think the question is the performance, not the dialogue. I think we may or not agree, um, but there is like there is a level of agreement that is possible and a level of conversation that may happen. And it needs to happen again and again because it gets forgotten. And there is something about not rehearsing that very conversation that's a problem. So that's why it needs to get repeated till you really cannot eat it more or almost have the feeling you have nothing else to add to that very conversation and still it needs to happen because the happening of it is a reminder of a behavior that needs to get into the system and it needs to change things. So I'm, I'm completely, um, I, I think, it's very, very important to look at the programs. It's very important to find a language to address the things in a structural way and say, no, listen, it's not an anecdotal transformation where we want a few women rescue artists when they are uh, 70 or 80, or uh, male curators uh, uh, going, uh, you know, um, claiming fame next to an 80-year-old, super glorious, fantastic woman artist. Because what we want is the whole system, all through. We don't want that kind of, or what do you think? What's going to happen with your career after 40s and in between the 40s and the 70s? Where are you going to be? I think what is mid-career artist female? It's, it's hard. So, and why is it hard? It's hard because it's, it's touching upon the very problems that we have. You may be a mother. I think it's so important to actually say it aloud. Yes, you may be a mother. Why is being a mother such of a problem? It is a problem because many people think that you may stop your career. By stopping your career, you devaluate your already devaluated value. So this kind of continuity versus like stability, continuity, these very things need to be um, need to be addressed, need to be on the table all the time. Otherwise, you demonize them. Otherwise, they become something that nobody talks about. And it's it's super easy to get out out. You know, when you are 40 you're out. And that's so interesting because this is happening systematically in every, um, in every level of the practice. It happens in the invitations of a conference. It happens in, the, in, in every level as a curator, as a, as a woman, uh, artist, so on. So this needs to totally be addressed. Don't you know, talking about a revolution Does this idea of a kind of collective responsibility, a kind of collective feminist responsibility, sort of weigh on either of you when thinking about taking commissions, when taking on projects, when thinking about collaborators? You were talking about the collaborators you choose to work with versus those you do not. Do you think about not just the way your work will be received in terms of your own individual career, but in a kind of larger context? Yeah, I think that's not really, uh, you cannot take one thing out of the other. I mean, it's like you never just work. Yeah. It always influences like everything around you, you know. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I would say yes, definitely. I think it's, I, t I, I thought about that very recently. I realized that in the past, um, also maybe because um, there were more uh, male models I was also looking at males, and I was also maybe my taste were also just uh, uh, built by these models, mm. and and it's very recent that I actually I was just like, no, but have to change. Actually, I have also 
to do the, eff the effort, also to, to reconsider, to realize that I'm completely built by this uh, patriarchy, and 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 that actually I'm 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 also in a way um, uh, misogynist, mm -hmm. also, even I'm a, I'm a woman. It's clear because I I'm built by uh, this 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 society, yeah. so need to to also reconsider um, your way of being, your way or, or your taste, your um, through this this uh, the thing. And, and, and maybe do an effort to, to um, yeah. yeah. Because taste, you know, there's also one of the questions again, but taste, I think, uh, yeah, uh, aesthetic taste gendered. And I think, yeah, aesthetic taste is gendered. It's, uh, it's a matter of class, like Woodyo wrote, for example. It's so inherited, like from the very beginning, like kind of your taste is constructed. So also like the references you look at in art history, all this is kind of like, it's so inherent and it's very hard to dismantle it or undo it and to kind of reconfigure. I think, I think it's also very, um, very interesting for, interesting. for example, uh, I, I, I was involved in, um, in a discussion in non-mixity, can we say that, without men, mm -hmm. so only women. Uh, so, so the men are not, uh, are not invited to come. And it's very nice because it's, it's um, it's it's a possibility actually to to discuss um, problems without having any kind of uh, man interruption, but it's also um, a nice way to observe all we all the hierarchy is everywhere, and even we are only women on stage or in the room, this kind of power and. Uh, um, is, is uh, the organization, the hierarchy um, built is, is here yeah. also. And that's very nice to see that it's not just only the, the man against the woman or the woman uh, against the man or the, the woman without the man or whatever, but it's also a uh, construction and that we have to reconsider all we, 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 we um, all everything is constructed, even if just we, um, women's involved. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that in a way, I think we've spoken about this before, that that, um, that power and the way that we know how to, to recognize it, how to grasp it, how to use it, how to employ it, is basically patriarchal. And we don't, mm -hmm. most of us don't know another way in which to mm. conceive of power, to wield it, to, to use it to good ends. Um, and so I think that on one hand, that's why women who hold power are so distasteful and so hated in the world. Because what did you say? Like, you know, like, you know, no one likes a woman who has power. So she has to figure out how to use it differently. And I think that figuring out how to use it differently is sort of part of like radically reimagining another kind of system, another kind of place. Um, but I think it's very difficult because I think what you were talking about before about like speed and short circuits, especially when you're working on large projects and you and you have a kind of you have deadlines and you have all these things. It's much easier to sort of delegate and get things done in the ways in which you've seen it get done. 
and to sort of short circuit, like, and you do that in ways that are often sometimes dehumanizing. They're definitely not feminist. And so ways in which of like holding and wielding power and yet also being productive in the sense of like getting projects done, getting decisions made, it's incredibly difficult. And it's like, it's this like kind of void or this oblique place of like complete blindness. And yet I think in the end it's quite important because I think regardless of whether one's inside a project or outside of it, I think that the way in which things are made are felt by an audience. They're felt by the spectator. Maybe they not, don't know exactly, but I think that those kind of, the kind of way, the, the way things are made, if they're not made in a kind of, of a way of equality and equity, it, it's, it's like this glistening on every part of the project. It, like, it shows through. Um, it impacts it in some like, very, very tangible way. And I think from those of us who, who uh, you know, we, we want to make the, the sort of most interesting and best possible work that we can, these are not issues that can be skirted. They have to be thought of at every stage of the process, basically. And it's also important to say that um, talking about the specific conditions that affect um, a, a singular gender, maybe woman, um, does also affect um, male, but also what we are trying to say is that there is a possibility of racing and we need it, um, gender solidarity. I think we, I would say we need uh, the male artists more than ever. We don't need them perhaps in the same function that they have been having historically, but we really need, need that solidarity among the genders in order to conceive a complete different constellation and a complete different language because if a behavior needs to change, it would affect, and as Natasha said, we need to get out of the dialectics of the attack response. And there is no better way as um, actually um, measuring how much of an action can also uh, male take. I, I realized this morning that um, that you know, sort of almost by accident, a slip of the tongue. That it was that instead of speaking so much about um, sort of gender relations and feminism, we were using the word woman or women as this kind of synonym. And again, to underline the fact that we're not sort of in that essentialist headspace. And you know, a woman is not essentially in a feminist. And also to, to sort of reemphasize the intersectionality of everything that we're speaking about and how uh, misogyny is, is upheld and in fact like completely interlaced and created by its interactions with, with racism and classism and environmental violence. And I think in a room like this, it can be, it can be easy to somehow let that sort of slip away. Um, and I think it's very important that that remain sort of at the forefront of our consciousness when we're talking about this, that there's a spectrum of feminisms and there's not one feminism, as there's not like some of one idea or ideal of woman. And I, I think that needs to also remain present. And yet at the same time, um, as we were speaking about earlier, to, um, to not be so uh, nervous or scared about somehow saying the wrong thing and thus like retreating from the argument. I think we need to be able to, and I think this is actually where art practice and poetry and um, however you want to name it is, is sort of in this ideal um, form for talking about these matters because there's, there's the room for slippages and mysteriousness and mistakes 
And I think we shouldn't retreat from that. Mm -hmm. I think what we're talking about is, is so complicated, and especially if what we're talking about is, is imagining a new set of social relations and a new set of conditions, um, economic, emotional, professional, personal. And in that space, we have to, we ha we have to allow sort of um, to mistakes and mysteriousness to sort of reign because without them, it becomes, it, it becomes kind of a replication of the systems that we know, which is actually what we want to move away from. Don't you know, talking about the revolution sounds. I want to speak about lying. Um, Lying is generally perceived as negative, and it's also very often associated with women. Women are supposedly deceitful. Um, in 2015, there was a, um, an article written about a study or a poll um, conducted by a British insurance company called Privilege, and that poll claimed that women are twice as likely to lie than men. And um, it's often insinuated that this is the case in bars like um, we heard about yesterday and also and especially in the media. And um, it is said that women lie about sexual abuse, they lie about or they fake orgasms, they don't honestly tell you what, uh, what they think because they try to trick you, they cannot be trusted. And of course, um, there's many things that are problematic um, with what I just said. And I want to make a case that first of all contests whether these assumptions about women and lying are true. Um, because studies such as these are of course um, highly unreliable and the parameters um, by which they measure are very unclear. So what counts as a lie and how are the questions worded? Um, they also don't sufficiently ask for the reasons why, um, assuming that it were true, that this may be the case. And secondly, I want to make an argument for lying um, or for finding loopholes and um, for disobedience of different types and forms. And I want to consider, um, or if we want to consider lying, we need to consider how women have been lied to for centuries and how they have been gaslighted to think that they or that we are the crazy ones. Um, and I do not want to advocate actual lies. My case is not so much for lying itself. Um, I actually don't really like liars. And as we've said before um, and heard before that in politics today, it doesn't matter anymore whether somebody is a liar and it, whether that is known or not, because there, there are no consequences, really. Um, but I'm discontent with the reality imposed on us. And so I want to ask, what if, find, what if lying or um, encountering loopholes and being disobedient are crucial survival mechanisms in a framework we live in and which we didn't create. Lying is disobedience to the moral duty and other constraints strangling us today as a possibility to evade control. And me speaking about lying here is an attempt to think about tactics and strategies. If women have been pictured as deceitful, why don't we cannibalize this bad image to create something new? Because, as Audrey Lorde said, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Perhaps we can consider lies and other forms of disobedience as an exaggeration of reality, as something which isn't yet true, but will maybe become true if only we believe it enough, if we work on it and if we spread the rumors long and far enough. 
So intensity of reality and of relations is necessary also for the political in order to be able to formulate and to act together. Um, I'd also say let's not use lies against each other, let's not compete with and deceive each other, uh, let's not let ourselves be weaponized and do the work of men or of the oppressor for them. But I, what I would like for us to consider are different forms of disobedience against the reality we didn't create and are not allowed to take part in. So it can also be omission of information, exaggeration, excess, humorful deceit, not defying the truth but creating a different truth. And we need to fundamentally question what counts as truth, since that concept itself is deeply flawed, as well as who gets to claim it. Um, we might also consider art as a form of lying, of disobedience, of creating a different reality out of, beside, or maybe in front of ourselves and in front of a reality we weren't invited to co-create. We can create our own language, which may not be understood in the beginning, or a fiction made of signs that don't yet have meaning, an own space with its own rules, which may be a castle in the air, not inhabitable at first, but eventually materializing. Or like the film we saw yesterday, we may need to create our own music, which would not be recognized as music as fir at first, which would be perhaps a betrayal to music or a lie, but eventually become our song. And when all of these strategies get old and readable, we may need to move from intense fiction and lies to something else, maybe intense honesty um, to evade being captured. Thank you. Don't you know talking about a revolution sounds like Participants were Stephanie Hessler, Natascha Sadre, Hanna Weinberger, Alexandra Navratil, Julieta Aranda, Elise Lammer, Emily Ding, Laura Miriam Leonardi, Selina Grüter and Michelle Graf, Camille Alenia, Axel Stiefel, Katharina Brandl, Laga Condor, Raffaella Naldi Rosano and Mareike Dittmar. Moderated by Chus Martinez and Quinn Latimer. If you are interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please go to our website www.institut-kunst.ch or request information or subscription to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch Institut Sush is part of a new museum initiative open to the public from January 2nd, 2019. More information can be found at www.museumsusch.ch Editing and Sound Design, Elena Ziesar. Research Assistant, Alice Wilke. Recordings, Konrad Siegel. Choir by Inka Teha and Emilia Alvarez. Produced by Institut Kunst Basel and Institut Susch, Art Stations Foundation Switzerland, 2018.